Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, this is your host, David Rothkopf, and the first thing I'm going to do is vow to you that we're going to change our intro, because we used to be kind of known for being snarky, and things aren't that funny these days, and I think we need to play things a little bit straighter. But that'll be next week. This week, we're very fortunate uh, to be joined, uh, as we are every Thursday, of course, by Ryan Goodman, uh, who is the co-editor of Just Security and a professor uh, at NYU Law School, and we're very grateful to have back with us uh, Mimi Roca, who is a former assistant U.S. attorney, a regular commentator on uh, television, and a professor at Pace University Law School. Uh, welcome, Mimi. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on this uh, big day. Yeah, it's been a big couple of days. Ryan said he has had a headache for three days. Um, <laughs> you said you wouldn't tell. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't, I don't, I don't. It feels like three weeks. Yeah, <laughs> yes. it, it really does. Uh, ever since the uh, first inklings of this whistleblower report uh, seemed to change the context. We've had a shift of 100 members of Congress who last week did not support an impeachment inquiry, and this week do support an impeachment inquiry. And in fact, we now have a majority in the Congress supporting an impeachment inquiry. Uh, at the moment, all Democrats, although there has been slight signs of erosion among the Republicans, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But because so much has happened, I thought the first thing that I ought to do is just simply get the take that each one of you has on this. And let me start with you, Mimi. Well, I guess, first of all, let me ask you a question. By this, are we talking about everything that happened? So, like, in these past three days that we've been talking about? Um, yeah. there, there's so much to talk about. I want to focus on what you would like us to focus on. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean by the Ukraine whistleblower case and its consequences. So, essentially, okay. everything that's happened since you were watching the Emmys on Sunday night. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, you know, without, I feel like hyperbole has, has lost its, um, meaning in a lot of ways, but, you know, um, I, and we need to invent new vocabulary because it, it, not because we overuse the words, but because the events keep getting more and more shocking, right? Not surprising, but shocking. And I think that's, that's where I am today, right? Is that, is that, so much of what we've found out over the just already over the past few days um, about this whole Ukraine scandal or whatever we're calling it um, is beyond even what I could have imagined. I mean, on the one hand, we know that Trump had said he was willing to solicit foreign assistance. I mean, he, he had said that in an interview and people thought, oh, my God, he said it. But then he actually did it. Right. And he didn't just solicited it, he, in my view, uh, as a former prosecutor, he really tried to extort it. And the, the mob-like nature of the way that he um, undertook this whole uh, endeavor of trying to get Ukraine to, you know, investigate, and I use that in quotes, uh, political opponents, um, holding up uh, you know, military aid to a country that needed it and had been promised it. it. I mean, it really reminds me of so many mob cases. And frankly, the mobsters that I uh, listened to and investigated were often more subtle than this. And then today, what, what was sort of layered on top of all of that, and that's, you know, just the tip of the iceberg, um, is this 
cover up. And I think we're still really trying to understand how wide that goes, how deep that goes, whether it was a political cover up or a criminal cover up. Um, but there, there's just so many different layers to it. But that's sort of the off the top of my head, you know, feelings of what I've been thinking a lot about the past couple of days. Well, it's 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 quite a lot. Why don't why don't you share your take on these these issues as well, Ryan? Um, so I agree with everything that Mimi had said. I guess for me as well, the transcript of that phone call kind of blew my mind, um, and no wonder it actually for the first time seemed to generate a whistleblower against the president of the United States. One of the pieces of it that blew my mind is that it wasn't even just the multiple references to Biden and getting dirt from Ukraine, but that was the phone call. It's not like he discussed something else during the phone call. What he discussed during the phone call, President Trump, is he just went straight after saying how much the United States gives Ukrainian support, straight after his own political interests about the 2016 election, about Joe Biden, and that was the end of the call. And, you know, even part of what— Well, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it, yeah. what we've learned since from the Ukrainians was that that was the precondition for the call. Yes. he had. A, uh, mm-hmm. We learned that from the Ukrainians. We also learned that from today from the whistleblower complaint that they understood that they had to, uh, quote-unquote, play ball. That's what the whistleblower's complaint says. And play ball meant uh, pursue the Biden case in order to have communications with the president— so in other words, he would com- he would cut off communications with the Ukrainians, uh, president-to-president communications, if they didn't play ball on Biden. So that's obviously beyond uh, clear that that's quid pro quo. And the, and the other part of it that's astonishing is that that's the fact that that's all he discussed in this phone call means that that's he's not doing the nation's business of national security. He's doing nothing in that call otherwise— in terms of trying to ensure the protection of Ukraine against Russia um, and the like, and so what a remarkable abuse of power, and that's been going on. And they had, more, you know, half a dozen people on that call, and uh, he thinks he can just do that um, with so many people, as he himself even said on Twitter before we saw the transcript, listening in. He knew so many people were listening in, and that's the way he conducted uh, the nation's business. Well, yeah, that's an interesting issue, Mimi, and there, there's so many interesting issues here. Um, But one that strikes me is the uh, whistleblower's complaint uh, alleges that there were 12 people who were at party to this process in some way or another, uh, including the vice president of the United States, the attorney general of the United States, uh, a couple of folks from the State Department and so forth. Uh, there, there were actually probably more because this simply involved getting, you know, things got processed through the White House. There are people who handle the classification or reclassification of documents, which was at the center of this. And the whistleblower, who the New York Times has now told us was a, a secondi from the Central Intelligence Agency, is the only person who thought this was wrong enough to bring it up. You know, I mean, it, it it really tells you something about the the culture within this administration that this only came up once because, as you point out, it's so egregious, uh, so mob-like. Um, and I might add, uh, it, this was not a one-off. There was a prior phone call. There was a pattern of behavior. Uh, there were obviously negotiations around this phone call in which the message <clears throat> went. You know, I mean, there was a quid pro quo before there was a quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And and one person thought this was wrong. And, and also very calculated, actually. It isn't just a series of sort of quid pro quos. He actually instructed his staff to freeze the aid to, to the Ukraine. Right. I mean, he actually did the thing first. Right. I mean, it's 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 very sort of. Um, it's very calculated. You know, it's not just, I'm going to do this. He did it. And then it's basically, oh, if you want to get this back, here's what you got to do, um, which is very Machiavellian kind of. But um, I, I, I don't believe the aid was voted by the Congress to Ukraine with a caveat saying the president could dispense it, dispense it when he wanted to. Or dispense it for the purposes right. of his campaign. 
It's almost like a, a right. did, did they make a $391 million contribution to the Trump campaign? He's using the right. money for his Which, campaign. Can I digress for a second on that? And Ryan, you know much more about this even than, than I do. But in this, this gets a little bit to the point that you were just making, David, about lots of people being involved. One of the sort of side notes of this that we heard is that the Department of Justice got this criminal referral about the call and or maybe maybe more than just the call, but at least about the call and said, oh, no, no campaign finance violation here because there's no thing to value. That is also mind blowing to use Ryan's term, because I understand that it's complicated to put a value on these things. We went through that with the Mueller report. But here you literally have Trump, you know, bargaining for a certain amount of aid in exchange for you do this investigation that I want for my campaign, uh, which is really what this was. So I, I it, not to mention that it appears that the Department of Justice didn't even consider, you know, the like five other criminal statutes that I think could be applicable. So uh, that it, it just seems to me like this was a real sort of railroad job of nope, nothing to see here. Close it up, which isn't surprising. But again, worth noting. Yeah, well, I would I would add before before we get to you, Ryan, but I would add that one of the things that always troubled me about the Mueller report was the uh, in the Mueller process was the assertion that they, they couldn't use um, uh, federal campaign law because there was nothing that was transacted that had a value they could easily measure, even though they prosecuted Paul Manafort for providing lobbying services and charging millions of <laughs> dollars for them, which were the to have the same result. In, in other words, there was there was actually a uh, 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 an analogy within that case as well, um, but clearly there there is something wrong here. And Ryan, one of the things that you know came out in the I found almost uncomfortable to watch hearings this morning mm. with acting uh, director of national intelligence McGuire was that his reaction, and one assumes he is an honorable man who served the country honorably, but his reaction was hmm. This is unusual. This complaint uh, says the president has done something wrong. Better check with the White House <laughs> um, to see to see whether there's executive privilege, com, uh, co, co, you know, uh, issues here. By the way, th- there are no executive privilege issues of forwarding the whistleblowers' complaint. The only time executive privilege issues might be ra- raised is after that. In other words, when you started to seek information. But quite apart from that, the other thing he did was he said, oh, well, even though Attorney General Barr is named in this thing, let me run it by the DOJ, even though the law is very specific. It says if the um, inspector general uh, of the intelligence community determines that uh, there is a, a credible issue uh, that is considered is deemed urgent. They have to hand it over to the Congress. It doesn't say run it by the White House first or run it by the DOJ first. Um. So there's a lot, there's a lot of different points there. Um, so just to first go to Mimi's point about the oddity of the Justice Department, Bill Barr's Justice Department, making this fairly quick decision. The, the timeline might be that you could put in. It looks like the timeline might be a few weeks. But they make the decision up front, no way they're going to even open an investigation because they determine that it's not quantifiable thing of value and because it's not quantifiable, done. Can't be a crime. And what's so strange about that is that the Mueller report, it it goes diametrically opposite the Mueller report. So the Mueller report does say that a campaign uh, derogatory um, information can be a thing of value. They cite a bunch of cases. Uh, They include a case, and they refer to it as saying that a police report that identifies witnesses could be the kind of information that is a thing of value. That's exactly what uh, Trump wanted on Biden, something like that, but even a souped-up version of that. Um, And then, as Mimi said, in terms of quantifiable, maybe the price tag is $391 million for the Ukrainians because that's that's what he's exchanging it for. And— the other way of putting it is, what is what is Rudy Giuliani's out-of-pocket expenses for traveling around the world over 
a several month period meeting with the Ukrainians and he has associates in Ukraine that are there working for him and arranging meetings back in the United States. How much money was that? Okay, because when we're talking about if it's two hundred, three hundred, not not to mention, by the way, who's paying that? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, who's paying that? And I had another former prosecutor email me today to say, like, somebody, you know, that that may be the key to a lot of this. Someone needs to start digging into that. Yeah, but you know, we yeah. don't have a functioning Department of Justice at the moment, so yeah, and it's a threshold of uh, twenty five thousand. As long as it's value as twenty five thousand. Um, that's a federal felony. So under the campaign finance law, was this worth $25,000 to Donald Trump? Of course it was. He'd pay $50 million for the Ukraine. Well, he paid $150,000 to make Stormy Daniels go away. Yes. You know, I mean, in in other words, we we know how much these things are worth to him because there's a market price that he's established already for some stuff. Yes. So I'd love to see that. Uh, document uh, that legal analysis by the Justice Department, by Bill Barr's Justice Department, um, and then um, uh, remind me of your questions, David. You had- no, no, I was just saying that McGuire then booted it oh, over yeah. the White House and DOJ. Yeah, just to put a finer detail on one of them. I mean, the complaint set doesn't just say that they engaged in a cover up in the way in which they used the classification system to, um, as you had said just before the show. Uh, drop this information down the well, um, the transcript down the well. But they actually say that they were directed by White House lawyers to do that. So that's who McGuire then sends it to, the White House lawyers, who are in the allegation. And then, as you'd mentioned, the allegation at the very beginning, in its very opening paragraph, there's one line and then an opening paragraph. The opening paragraph summarizes the whistleblower's complaint. The last line says, the Attorney General Bill Barr may be involved. And then it goes to Bill Barr. Who doesn't recuse himself. Who doesn't recuse himself. How could you not recuse yourself in that situation? It's in, it's inconceivable. Right. I mean, to, to defend McGuire a little bit for a second, who I don't think, you know, I, I mean, I'm not defending him like he did everything right, but but I, I actually thought that maybe the Democrats went after him a little too much personally here in the sense that I don't think he... I don't think he was part of a cover-up. I think he's like a company guy who followed what the what the protocol and rules would be in normal situations, and this is not normal times, you know. And he he wasn't equipped to be sort of agile enough to to change what you would normally do in an un, what he admits was an unprecedented situation. But really, the blame is on Barr and the lawyers. I mean. Things came into the U.S. Attorney's Office when I worked there where, you know, the U.S. Attorney was Preet. And I don't know, let's say it came in and it involved a company that a relative of his was involved in or something. I'm making this up, but something like that. He would look at it and say, well, I have to recuse from this, This, Mm -hmm. you know, and 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 that's a, a much different situation. But, I mean, if you have any integrity, it's not admitting guilt to say, I'm I'm recusing. It's saying, well, my name is in this. I can't actually be part of this. And any one of those, Barr in particular, you know, I mean, I know I'm I'm saying something that this he obviously would not do. But I, I feel like you have to repeat sort of what I think other people with integrity would do. And 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 so I think it's on him, not as much on the the acting director. Um, I actually I agree with you, and I also think they went way too hard in McGuire. And if you're going to, as you said, if you're going to point the finger at who's the, where's the cover-up coming from, I think it's White House lawyers, something's happening there, and it's the Justice Department. And McGuire could also assume in a certain level that if he sends it to the Justice Department, of course Attorney General Barr must recuse because it's just so starkly obvious. And then, you know, also in a certain sense, just in favor of McGuire again, he is getting a complaint that involves a U.S. The, the president in a conversation with a foreign leader, and I could imagine that that is so unprecedented that he does think there's, and if he knew even more, that there is a long precedent of the executive branch uh, claiming that is a special uh, zone of confidentiality. Um, so I, I kind of I feel for him too. But the other part about feeling for him is in terms of the difficulty of his position, remember the one line that he said in the hearing that I stuck for me is one of the lines that stuck for me is he says, you know, there, there I was the acting 
And with my, you know, Garmin, in other words, I guess his uh, GPS, so he still hasn't found his way to work yet. And that's the other part of this. So you put this person in a weakened position as the acting director of national intelligence, and President Trump has on multiple occasions says he likes acting uh, senior officials because it gives him more flexibility over them. And here we have it. Well, it means more leverage. Yeah, leverage. That's flexibility. Means right, leverage. because yeah. their future depends on the president. No way somebody who is answerable to Congress because they've been confirmed by Congress does not. Yes. Um, I'm a little less sympathetic to McGuire than both of you, although I think you know I'm not questioning his career or his patriotism. He's obviously made a great commitment to his country. But I do think that there were a number of common sense decisions mm. involved in this thing in which he made the wrong choice. And uh, I also think there were a number of opportunities for him to do things that would have been not just commonsensical but the right thing to do that he didn't do it. He didn't step out and protect the whistleblower as he should have done. Uh, He wouldn't even today, uh, on the day that we're taping this, which is the day that his hearings took place, uh, say uh, that the the, – the whistleblower wasn't a partisan hack. Yes, he, he he couldn't bring himself to do that. He kept saying, "Well, I don't know who the whistleblower is." Well, did he act in good faith? Yes, but is he a partisan hack? Well, I don't know. And so, you know, he was trying to play both sides of this thing. Uh, and th- and then there's this element of common sense. You know, if the president's named and the attorney general is named, and the law says you must hand it over. Mm-hmm. And you know that the Attorney General of the United States holds the view that the president himself can never be convicted of a crime, which means there is only one remedy of this for this, and that remedy lies with the Congress of the United States. It does not lie with these others. Uh, it seems to me that there is an obligation, and I think he was being a little cute with it. Or if he wasn't being cute with it, he was being a little bit too bureaucratic. He was being a little bit too chain of command. And I think, Mimi, one of the consequences of this, and it's a bit of a distraction, but I think one of the consequences of this is that it chills other whistleblowers. It chills, you know, if if, Mm. if you're a whistleblower Mm. and you don't think the system's going to protect you and you think the acting in charge of your agency is maybe going to leave you out to dry and the White House is and the Department of Justice is, and so your claims are going to get shot down pretty early. You know, maybe you think, I'm going to Florida for the weekend. You know, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go through that. But there are other consequences of this, are there not? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think think chilling of whistleblowers is certainly one. And it it kind of goes with the whole atmosphere that's been created for – frankly, a wider pool of people, public servants, um, you know, in in uh, government, right, you know, for the past couple of years, right, the whole attack on FBI agents and prosecutors and, uh, you know, other intelligence officials and, and as deep state and, you know, from the president on down with very little um, defense by those institutions' leaders, right? Like, we, I mean, I think Chris Ray is one of the few um, in this time who occasionally has spoken out and said, no, no, the FBI is made up of good men and women. But beyond that, it's been Trump's attacks and just complete silence um, of defending the integrity of, you know, all of these people. So um, I, I think... It, it, uh, for me, one of the one of the sort of lasting effects of of this presidency, and there are many, but lasting bad effects is uh, I, I would be discouraged from going to work for these institutions that I once loved working for and and would have encouraged anyone to do. But it's it's not right now. It feels like a very thankless task, and I think this goes in that category, but even more seriously, especially when you look at. You know, the New York Times now sort of outing this whistleblower um, and the president, you know, saying that people like that should be, well, he wasn't talking about the whistleblower, but he was talking about the people who gave information to the whistleblower should be, you know, calling them spies and, and basically threatening them. So, Ryan, um, you know Mimi. She's a cool-headed person. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say outrageous things. Mm-hmm. Um in the course of the conversation 10 minutes ago, 
she said, but we don't have a DOJ. <laughs> and, you know, neither of us said uh, anything. We were just like, uh, yeah, we, well, we don't, we don't have a DOJ, you know. Um, and, I guess that a functioning DOJ. Yeah, no, no, okay, no. a functioning DOJ. Yeah. But, but the, okay, that's a, it's a, a distinction without a difference, perhaps. I, 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 you know, I, I see us in a position right now where major parts, and I think we discussed this the last time we got together, but major parts of our national immune system against mm-hmm. high-level crime have been compromised in a, in a very, very serious way. What's a country to do that doesn't have a functioning DOJ? Impeach. <laughs> um, uh, well, it seems to be coming that way. You have in front of you some poll results that right. say the, the I mean, the, the support for impeachment has gone up 10% in the past couple of months, hasn't it? I mean, it's... Yeah, and including among um, not just Democrats. Uh, that gets that number to that point. Um, so I, I agree. And, and at least the, um, the transcript of that phone call, if it is indicating something truthful about Bill Barr then it means that Bill Barr, as the head of the Justice Department, is using his power to go after the political rivals of the president. That's what it means. Um, And that's why uh, Bill Barr had to issue a statement denying it within 30 minutes of the release of the transcript. But if that's... And there are other data points to suggest that is what Bill Barr is doing. Um, And the president, in um, an interview with Politico, I think it's in May, uh, said that he... It would be... Uh, certainly appropriate for him to ask Bill Barr to investigate Biden. Um, and uh, before that, uh, discussed the same idea with uh, Sean Hannity on the, interestingly, the same day of April 25th that Biden announced his candidacy. Then Trump goes on Sean Hannity, and Hannity says to him at the very beginning of the interview, hey, did you see this report by John Solomon um, on the Ukrainian information? And uh, don't you think that the Amer- it's almost like it's just a pure setup. Don't you think the American people should know about that? Don't you think we should get the information from Ukraine? And, and then Trump says, yes, and I think Bill Barr will look into it. So <laughs> so if that's how Justice Department, head by, headed by him, when I say impeachment, I you know, one also has to think about impeaching Bill Barr. Um, given the atrocious decisions he's been making that compromise the integrity of the Justice Department— and if it is discuss- and one other piece of this that we'll, I think people are going to drill down on is did the president ask him to investigate matters related to Ukraine uh, before May 1st of 2019? The reason I say that is because that's the kind of infamous back and forth that he had with Kamala Harris, where she said to him, is any very straightforward, very precise prosecutorial question, has anybody in the White House ever encouraged, asked, or suggested to you to investigate anyone. And he wouldn't answer, and everybody saw that. And he, she said it again, because his trick is, one of his parlor tricks is to get the senator to reformulate their question, and he finds a different way to work through a different weasel word. So she wouldn't reword her question, and he ends up at the end of that back and forth saying, I don't know. And if he knows, uh, and if he made an intentional false statement, or otherwise we think of it as perjury, he should be out. He, he, he should be, but of yeah. course— He's not going to recuse, and the, it, it's hard, and, and, it, and it seems unlikely. I mean, we do face this issue that the Senate seems unlikely to do anything, although there's a little weensy bit of movement with Romney and Sass and a few others saying some things, but it's, it's, it's pretty mild at the moment. Um, I mean, I don't know what, what remedy there is. Can he be disbarred? Seems 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 like he's failing to uphold certain minimum basic legal ethics. You would think so. I don't think that. I mean, yeah, but I don't. I don't. So is Giuliani. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. Certainly not. Why these these regular regulatory bodies like that are not very proactive. Um, I mean, they they would likely take action after something. You know, somebody else finds that he did something wrong. Um, but but on this point, I mean, I, and I, I, I mean, you're right. I sort of said it in passing that, you know, we don't have a functioning DOJ. And I've said that more in the past few days than ever. And I had never said it before, I don't know, six months ago. Mm. 
Um, I mean, as you both know, I mean, I am someone who has had great faith in the institution of the Department of Justice and its ability to withstand um, a lot of things, including even people like Bill Barr being the head of it. But it's it's increasingly seemed like that hasn't been happening. And I, I, one of the examples of that, I think, is that, you know, we're seeing all this bad conduct coming out and the Department of Justice not only isn't part of exposing it, it's part been part of an effort to keep it under wraps and, you know, certainly not opening investigations where clearly, I mean, investigations should be opened. And it's possible that someone is that we don't know about, you know, but uh, I mean, Giuliani, somebody should be doing a criminal investigation of him now. Um, and I, I doubt that's happening, though I would be pleasantly surprised if it, if it, if it was. Um, but but part of it also is, I mean, when Bill Barr comes out and says, oh, no, you know, I, I, I didn't know anything about that. I wasn't talking to Ukraine. Well, first of all, he's basically calling Trump a liar then, because that yes. means Trump is going around using Barr's name as, you know, in different ways. Um, so there's that issue. Um, but also... It, it has no credibility. He has no credibility bar anymore. And to have the head of the Department of Justice mm-hmm. have zero credibility due to his own false statements in the past, public false statements about the Mueller report and other things, you know, that, I mean, that's why I've gotten to the point that I'm at of saying, I still think that the career prosecutors who are there are trying to do their jobs. And I think it's getting harder and harder for them. But increasingly, Barr's hand is in, in you know, evident in things like, for example, the Southern District intervening, uh, you know, to to stop the Manhattan DA from getting Trump's tax returns, or at least to get a delay. That to me, that was bar. That was not, I really don't think that was the Southern District's idea. Um, that's not to say the Southern District is off the hook for going along with it if they didn't think it was meritorious, but I have no doubt that came from bar. Well, yeah, and it, it's, Beyond the fact that, and and by the way, that seems to be the way I begin every sentence because it's like, well, it's not just this bad thing. There's another bad thing. But, <laughs> you know, beyond the fact that they're not opening investigations, Barr is actively shutting down investigations. Right. You know, there were a number, 12 or something like that, investigations ongoing uh, at the time of or associated with the Mueller report. And as far as we know, a number of them have been shut down or wound down in one way or another. We've only got about 10, 12 minutes left here. Um, and uh, the, the, far too many questions to, to, to go over, but I'd like to go over two. Um, the, the, the first of them, and I get both of your reactions, is what are the crimes here? Hmm. Let's just try to you know, sort of break it down uh, associated with this issue, which, by the way, is not the only issue, and I'll come to that. But, and, and, and perhaps I'll come to that in the second part, which is what's next? But so, Ryan, let me go first to you and name as many as you can in, you know, 90 seconds, and then Mimi can fill in some more. Okay. Um, So let me not answer your question first and then answer it. The way I'd want to not answer it is I am a bit worried that lawyers and are occupying too much of this space. And when this goes to impeachment, what we mean about bribery and extortion uh, can be defined much more broadly than the technical nature of does it fit within exactly and did he have the mental state and all the re- so I think at some level if this the the abuse of power that's taking place uh, we narrow it way too much if we're going to think about the what's required for a criminal law violation. So at the same time, I'm sure that the Republicans are going to say if there's no crime, then it doesn't write to an No, and in fact they have. I've yeah, already heard yeah. people on the air saying. Well, you know, uh, Andrew Johnson committed a crime. Richard Nixon committed a crime. Bill Clinton committed a crime. That means you have to commit a crime in order to be impeached. Of course, that's not true, but right. they are saying it. Right. Um, and uh, the uh, leading authority on impeachment and the kind of the impeachment uh, handbook, essentially, that all members of the House staff, I believe, <laughs> have copies of now is Charles Blacks. And he said, uh, he gave an example. Um, if the president left the country, um, it's kind of a there's a lot uh, kind of a heterosexist and sexist dimension to it. But leaves the country, goes to Saudi Arabia, and uh, marries nine wives and stays there. 
It's not a crime. But it's impeachable. It's just like if you if you and it's interesting because it's a total dereliction of your duties. If you are derelict in your duties, and that phone call with Ukraine is total dereliction of national security duties, it's impeachable. That's what we mean by high crimes and misdemeanors. But so, but at the same time, they're going to say it's not a federal crime. It's not a crime. So I would just say listing them out. <clears throat> but uh, Mimi's more the expert. Uh, one federal election campaign law violation, soliciting something of value from a foreign national, done. Bribery and extortion, done. And the other one is a denial of um, honest services, which uh, we had a piece on just security by Barb McQuaid that uh, also shows that's done. It's just a form of public corruption in which you're exchanging uh, some public good like $391 million for uh, personal self-enrichment. Done. Okay, that's that's three. Can you top this, Mimi? <laughs> he stole mine. Um, <laughs> I do want to emphasize the last one, actually, because I think theft of honest services sounds very, um, I, mean, I, I, I use that term too, but it, it's very legalese. Yeah. I mean, we also call it, I mean, it is a form of extortion or bribery in and of itself. And, and I actually, I, I think that one applies probably best to Trump's actions um, in the sense of, you know, he really was using his position, his <clears throat> official position as president to control, you know, this money, this this aid to Ukraine and saying in exchange, I want this service. And the case law is very clear that, um, you know, getting a service in exchange is is uh, violates the, the Hobbs Act extortion. Um, and um, so I, I, you know, and I, and I think that to me, that's what I mean, I'm kind of conflating extortion and bribery. And as Ryan says, like, if we go by the elements, you know, they're, they're different. But I think, overall, that that sort of the bucket, I would put this in because that's what it looks and feels like. And I think also could meet the elements if we went through them. And then the question for other people who don't have this, you know, DOJ policy to protect them is, what did they know and when, right? So Giuliani is involved for sure in the Ukraine piece. Did he, did he know, you know, in the, seeking their assistance in the investigation, did he know that Trump was also kind of holding back this aid? I mean, I think the answer is yes, but how would you prove that as a prosecutor? And that's why I was saying they, you know, they certainly should be investigating that. Um, I think the other ones that I would add, which are not as serious, but um, would be possible FCPA violations mm-hmm. or, or um, you know, basically bribing uh, the leader of a foreign country. I mean, it depends how you look at it, who is bribing who here. Um, but, but that is a possibility. I think with respect to um, Giuliani, you could have some Logan Act violations, but that is, you know, a little used um, statute and not as serious as some of the other crimes, although easier to prove. And I do think if there was ever going to be a Logan Act, um, type of crime, uh, you know, use of, of that statute, it would be here because you truly have this private individual acting on behalf of the president completely, you know, as the articles have said, running this shadow uh, foreign policy with, with Ukraine, basically. Well, and me, that's just dangerous. Well, given, given the time constraints, let me just throw a couple out there. You guys can both say yes or no to mine. Um, I am at a disadvantage having not attended law school and not knowing anything about what I'm talking about. But I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, It seems like a number of people were involved in these crimes. Mm -hmm. And if a number of people were involved in the commission of a crime against the United States, wouldn't that open conspiracy um, questions into the mix? Uh, Yes. Uh, So it's uh, engaging in a conspiracy in uh, Giuliani and his associates and Others who may have been involved as well, and um, yeah, uh, 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 one other point I think is worth just saying. Now, now um, just to explain how clear this is, how like unequivocal, um, Judge Napolitano was on uh, Fox News, uh, Shep Smith's show, which I don't watch, <laughs> but, right? Which you but, depend on for all of your news. Yes. But it was a remarkable six minutes. People should check it out and send it to their MAGA friends and family members. Uh, So Shep Smith says, simple question, if the president, what the president has admitted to is true, is that a crime? Napolitano says, yes, it is solicitation of a thing of value from a foreign national. Then per your question, David, um, Shep Smith says, 
if Giuliani was doing uh, was involved, would that be a crime? And then Palantano says, if yes, if Giuliani was doing that in order to help Trump's campaign, it would be the same crime as the president. It is the same crime that the Mueller uh, team was investigating. Just clear as day. Um, so, you know, I think hopefully that might change the public's understanding of this uh, in a certain sense, uh, just given the gravity of this and how clear it actually is. Well, let me ask one more question about this, uh, Mimi, and then I'll do the quick follow-up on what happens next. Perhaps we can look at just the immediate future. Um, but uh, what about, I mean, with, with the thing that leapt out at me as a student of the National Security Council and how all this works and so forth was the assertion in the complaint that the the contents of the call were classified, code word clearance level, um, essentially put into a kind of safe that would keep anybody from seeing them, um, and that this had happened multiple times before, which raises the question of what other conversations does the president not want us to know about? Uh, and this is not an issue of presidential conversations with foreign leaders should be kept um, uh, private. It's that the, the issue that presidents should not be committing crimes with foreign leaders. And if the president can take anything that's a crime and classify it at such a high level that nobody can see it, then he can commit any crime. And it gets to the broader issue here, which was there was clearly an awareness of guilt Mm-hmm. And 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 the question, Mimi, is is not obstruction of justice likely to enter into this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I think I tweeted something today right after reading the complaint for the first time of, you know, we can add obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice to the list of potential crimes. It seems to me that at least on the face of that complaint and, and, and that part that you um, pointed out, we know there was a cover up a political cover-up, right? They were keeping things, people, we don't know who, uh, were keeping things from the public dissemination that would have been damaging, that they saw as potentially damaging to Trump. The question is, were they also trying to keep that from investigators? And, you know, so, so going back to Ryan's point, if we, had, if we were going to analyze sort of the elements of the crime, we'd want to say, okay, well, what, what investigations had Congress already sort of established at that point? Were the people involved in this aware of those? Were they trying to keep those from the investigation? Were they trying to impede an investigation or were they just trying to do damage control politically? And it doesn't have to be either or, but is it both for it to be sort of criminal? So I think cover up for sure. Is it criminal obstruction or criminal conspiracy to commit obstruction? We need a lot more facts, but again, we need either, we need a functioning Department of Justice to investigate that and it cannot obviously, be run by Bill Barr. No question about that. One minute left for each of you, and then I'm going to have 30 seconds of my own. What, what do you look for next, Ryan? Um, the speed by which uh, articles of impeachment are voted uh, in the House, because he will be impeached, and whether it'll be narrowly wrapped around the Ukraine situation plus maybe obstruction or broader? And that's what I'm, I think those are the two big questions. Okay. Mimi, what about you? I think I'm looking for more facts to come out, mm. um, details about both Trump's interactions with Ukraine. And, you know, we already know the basics and those are devastating, but I think as more facts come out, it's, it's going to get worse, not better for him. And then also this question that we were just talking about, who was involved in this cover-up and what exactly was their motive? What were they trying to do? I think, you know, I think the net of people who sort of casting the net of people who have done uh, wrong here is, is kind of growing. And, and we need to look at that. But I, I really hope that there's some way to force Bill Barr to um, recuse himself from this. And, you know, I, that will take political pressure. And I don't, I don't know that that's happening. Although, you know, if if there ever was a time, this seems like a clear one to me. Yeah, it it seems to me, by the way, again, not being a legal expert, but being a sort of semi-expert on how 
this this works and the history of this in Washington. Um, I I think it behooves Adam Schiff or Jerry Nadler or somebody to call the question on congressional subpoenas on records pertaining to this and other issues as soon as possible Mm -hmm. and to get a court to stand up for the concept that the Congress has the right to subpoena things. Because until they do, the White House is going to drag its feet. It's going to say no. It's going to say executive privilege. It's going to keep people from participating. And it's going to try to just sort of drag this out. And so until they have, you know, sort of some court somewhere at a high level saying, uh, no, Constitution's clear. You've got to follow the law. Um, this is this is not going to be as conclusive as it can be, and nor is it going to end, I think. Um, but but the, the the final comment I wanted to make in the last 30 seconds here, and if you guys want to say something after it, feel free, but the final comment that I want to make is there seems to be a debate going on within some on the Democratic side of this thing about whether the impeachment inquiry really ought to focus narrowly on this issue or whether it ought to focus on a number of other issues. Uh, and the argument in favor of keeping it narrow is that this issue is uh, the slam dunk of all the the issues. I'm not sure that's true, by the way, but that's the argument. Um, but, you know, I would point out that um, the president's campaign manager, who's now in jail, um, lobbied for the Ukraine. He changed the Republican platform in 2016 regarding Ukraine because he was lobbying for an oligarch that had Russian ties. Um, uh the Russians came to see Trump to get sanctions lifted that had been imposed upon them after invading the Ukraine, or Ukraine, forgive me for saying the Ukraine. Um, uh, and uh, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that this case is closely related to the other case, and to disconnect the mm. two of them uh, I think is, is, is doing an injustice. Somebody has to do a real investigation of what's behind all of this. Furthermore, whatever we may say about what the Mueller report did or did not do in volume one, which has to do with the collusion side of things, there is a very, very clear case of multiple instances of obstruction of justice, which should not go um, unpunished. Uh, And there is, by the way, uh, a rationale that exists in the history of impeachment, which suggests that multiple articles give the Senate the opportunity to vote up or down on on one or two of them, and and still vote in favor of one of them, and thus mm-hmm. uh, remove the president. Uh, but having said that, the federal campaign finance law violation and that the Southern District identified is a pretty clear cut case. The emoluments case is a pretty clear cut case. Um, there are you know other instances uh, of uh, of, of crimes by President Trump that not only would benefit from being aired, but there is the possibility the Senate won't do the right thing on this. And therefore, the benefit of the impeachment hearing is to raise the president's crimes, make the case, do it publicly, so that you win in the court of public opinion, even if you don't win in the court of the United States Senate. And that, to me, argues for identifying every place that you can make a rock-solid case with facts on your side that you do it and that you don't keep it narrow. Now, that's just my view, and you guys have been here a long time and you have other things to do. If You if, you know, you may or may not want to comment on it. Mimi, do you have a comment you want to add to that, or Brian? I, I mean, I, I don't know that I can add more eloquently to what you to what you just said eloquently um but uh yeah i mean i i think that part of what what needs to be done now is 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 i mean there's impeachment but there's also investigation to expose the acts and the conduct regardless of what the final result is and whether trump gets impeached or not for for partly for national security and partly for, you know, just going forward in, in the history books. We need to know what's happened here. And I think we still don't know, as you've pointed out in several different ways. Okay. Right. Um, 
I think they need to move ahead quickly. And I worry if we add all these pieces onto the table, it won't happen quickly. And part of the reason I think we should do quickly, expeditiously in a sense, um, is that uh, now's the time. The public understands they're not going to get as much fatigue and they can be educated on the Ukraine plus, I think, public corruption type issues, including the obstruction uh, coming out of volume two of the Mueller report. I think those are all connected. And um, I worry about things that are being overtaken by events. I worry that we're in January, February of 2020, and for some reason there is an armed conflict with Iran. His popularity goes up, and it's like, are you really going to impeach a president at, war, in, at wartime or in, in this particular war? So they're just things like the, that I, I worry about. And I also think there's something, if one were being politically pragmatic about it, for the Democrats to do impeachment and then spend more of 2020 focusing on the health health care issues and other things like that, that they're otherwise worried about, uh, that the w- voters will think, oh, you spent all your time trying to impeach him rather than doing the things that are important to my individual life. So I think there are different ways that that ends up cashing out in favor of something that's a little bit more narrow, though it's not just Ukraine. Okay, both uh, reasonable views. I, maybe there's a Larry Tribe-like contra- compromise where you say, okay, we're going to move this one first and we're going to reserve mm. the right to move other ones later. Yes. Because yes. You, mm-hmm. there's no mm-hmm. there's no obligation to do it all at once, right? And yes. so, you know, you say, well, we're sure. going to keep them open, but this is an urgent matter, and so let's deal with the urgent matter and we'll reserve the right. Yes. Um, Okay, well, I'm glad we resolved that among the three of us. <laughs> um, and we'll just send this directly over to Adam Schiff, but, um, who has been on and who listens, so maybe may, maybe he will hear it. Um, thank you very much, Mimi. Thank you very much, Ryan. Uh, we'll keep on top of this uh, day in and day out. Uh, and uh, hopefully you guys will, well, hopefully you'll be back soon. Mimi, I'll see you next week. Um, Ryan, and um, and for those of you who are looking for more of this, go to the DSRnetwork.com, uh, where we've got multiple podcasts each week, including one I did yesterday, uh, which was an extraordinary 50 minutes I had with Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense, former CIA director, former um, White House Chief of Staff, talking about all of this stuff. And he's absolutely extraordinary guy, served nine presidents, has really remarkable perspectives on this. And it was a great conversation. So I encourage you to go look at that one, uh, as well as all of our regular programming at the DSRnetwork.com. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you, Mimi. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.